and welcome back to the podcast. This is Carter Clement, and we've got an interview for you today that I'm really excited about and really enjoyed. I think you're going to like it. It is specifically about trochleoplasty. One of my co-hosts, Dr. Dominic Gargiulo, also from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, is going to be taking the reins, and he's going to be speaking with Dr. Lee Pace from Connecticut Children's Medical Center. And they're going to start off with Dr. Pace just giving a quick overview of the history and the different techniques for trochleoplasty to put things in perspective. And then they're going to get into the literature. They're going to discuss a technique article that was really the impetus for this conversation by Dr. Pace that came out last year in Arthroscopic Techniques. The paper was called Trochleoplasty, MPFL Reconstruction, and Open Lateral Lengthening for Patellar Instability in the Setting of High-Grade Trochlear Dysplasia. But before that, they're going to give us a little historical perspective. They're going to talk about a slightly older article out of Zurich, Switzerland from 2006 in the British JBJS before it was known as the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. And that one was from senior author Dr. Berider. It was really one of the establishing papers for this technique. And it was called Trochleoplasty for Recurrent Patellar Dislocation in Association with Trochlear Dysplasia, a 4- to 14-year follow-up study. So with no further ado, here is Dr. Pace to get things started and give us some background. There's different types of trochleoplasties that um, that you can do. There's what's called albi facet elevating trochleoplasty. There is this um, recession wedge trochleoplasty. And then there's these two different types of what are called groove deepening trochleoplasty, which is, and the groove deepening ones are what is performed uh, nowadays by basically everybody. And then within though, there's two types of groove deepening trochleoplasties. There's a thin flap or a thick flap technique. And the thick flap technique, people who use this have had some connection with Dave DeJour yes. in, in, in Lyon, France. Um, and then Brider was the, basically the godfather of this thin flap groove deepening technique. And that's the technique that I use. And that's one that I learned. Um, I actually went to Germany. I spent a week with Philip Schottel in 2016 and learned how to do it from him. Well, that's perfect. Thank you, Dr. Pace. And from here, I'll hand things over to Dominic Gargiulo, specifically to get started with that article by Dr. Breider from 2006 in the British volume of JBGS. And again, the title was Trochleoplasty for Recurrent Patellar Dislocation in Association with Trochlear Dysplasia. All right, great. Okay, so the paper there, basically just to give a, a quick rundown of it, was a uh, retrospective paper. They had four to 14-year follow-up, uh, mean was 8.3 years, and they uh, followed clinical and radiographic outcomes of uh, 38 patients and 45 knees. Uh, the mean age of the patients was 22 years, so skeletally mature. Obviously, this technique is more for skeletally mature uh, type patients. They had uh, excellent outcomes as far as uh, no recurrence of any dislocation, uh, they did have some, uh, you know, patellofemoral pain was one of the uh, interesting parts of the article, and uh, hopefully we can get into that uh, just a little bit as far as uh, what happened in their experience in that paper was uh, they did have, you know, some of the knees had some preoperative patellofemoral pain. A few of them got worse, about 30% unchanged and about 8% and improved in over half. The radiologic assessments in the uh, 33 knees Basically, all but two of the knees had complete correction of their trochlea dysplasia, and some of the joints did show some patellofemoral degenerative changes. Basically, they concluded that trochleoplasty is successful at treating recurrent patellar dislocation. You know, just to review the causes of patellar uh, dislocation, uh, risk factors, ligamentous laxity, femoral and tibial malrotation, patella alta, and of course, uh, uh, the big factor here is trochlear dysplasia in over 85% of uh, patients with patellar instability. And uh, we know that the, the radiographic signs are the crossover signs, trochlear bump, and uh, decreased trochlear depth. 
and then they got into the methods, which uh, is, is open where you could sort of take over and uh, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the methods or, or the actual surgical technique. Yeah, yeah. So um, the surgical technique is, it's not too terribly different than, than what I do today. Huh? They do a lateral peripatellar approach, and then the, the kneecap is dislocated medially. And then working from proximal to distal, a thin osteochondral flap is elevated. And that's the part that always scares people the most um, when you see it or do it is, is literally lifting this whole sleeve of trochlear cartilage up, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the part that I think people, the first time they see it, they, they, that's what they kind of have to deal with. Um, but anyway, but that flap is elevated as much as you need it to be. And then with that flap up, you can then remove all that excessive and pathologic subchondral bone uh, that's not supposed to be there. Um, there's several deformities that, that are present in trochlear dysplasia, but obviously the principal one is that there's extra bone where it shouldn't be, which doesn't allow a groove to be present. So you basically create a groove by chiseling out bone, and then you press the flap down into place. And that flap needs to be thin enough so that it's moldable. Um, so you have to thin that flap out in such a way, get, you know, just, you leave just a little layer of bone on the back and then that, and then it, you can mold it with your thumbs into the groove um, and then you hold it in place. And, and here they talked about, they did these, um, you know, I didn't fully understand exactly what they meant. They said fixed by two transosseous bicral bands. Right. Um, you know, they, they drilled a couple holes in the cortex of the lateral femoral condyle. So it's almost like they just passed like a big needle from the center of the trochlea out to the lateral femoral condyle or something like that and passed the suture and just kind of tied it down. And, and we do a version of that now, probably a little bit more robust in that we use some bioabsorbable knotless suture anchors, and we've sort of tensioned the sutures between these anchors, and that's what really holds it in place. Again, you know, we've evolved the current technique from this technique that's being described here. And then the other thing that they did that's interesting, um, and this is not always done, but it probably should be done, is they did a some sort of soft tissue retentioning and every patient. I think that that's critical. You know, patellar instability doesn't result because someone has an inherently weak medial patellofemoral ligament, right? It, it's because they've got some underlying pathoanatomy. They've got, you know, most common is dysplasia, but like you mentioned, they could have patella alta, they could have femoral antiversion, they could have genuvalgum, you know, and there are some people that do have ligamentous laxity, but those people represent the minority of people. But again, the MPFL is like the last thing to fail. You've, you've got these forces that want to dislocate the patella. The MPFL is hanging on as strong as it can. It eventually gives out due to the underlying pathoanatomy. But when you fix that underlying pathoanatomy, it doesn't reset the soft tissue tension. So you have to go out back and you have to fix that surgically. So, you know, they did either a medial reefing or they did some sort of reconstruction of the medial patellofemoral ligament. And then they also mentioned closing the lateral retinaculum. And, you know, and that's what you got to do. If you look at any studies that look at trocleoplasty as an isolated procedure, meaning that you just do a trocleoplasty and you ignore the soft tissues, it works quite well. People are still very happy, but you've got, you know, you'll still have a, a redislocation rate of seven, eight percent. And as many as 20 people may still have a persistent apprehension sign on exam. So retensioning those soft tissues, I, I do a, a routine MPFL reconstruction. And then I also do a, what's called a lateral lengthening as opposed to a lateral release. Um, and that's my way to loosen up the lateral ligaments, which typically become tight. Um, and then obviously, retention and augment the uh, medial restraints. 
um, sort of to rebalance the patella in the neutrochlear groove. So anyway, so they they did they did basically that, and uh, you know they they let them bear full weight right away, and they let them get moving right away. Um, with the extension that twenty degree block to full extension, I, I don't do that. I don't even put them in a brace. They just have full motion, full weight bearing right away. It actually makes the rehab quite easy. And then they obviously that was the surgical procedure and the, and the rehab, and and then there's basically how they did after that. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting how they the, the uh, to facilitate remodeling of their their uh, neutrochlear groove. They blocked that full extension, which which did make sense uh, to me. But I was like, oh boy, hope they don't get stuck. And then they end up with a flexion contracture. I was uh, curious how your postoperative course difference, and we can of course uh, get to that once we review your paper. But excellent, yeah, that's exactly what those guys did, and they had great, really great outcomes. Uh, you know, uh, overall subjective patellofemoral. Pain was uh, a little bit of, of an issue in a few of the patients, but uh, clearly there were no more uh, issues with instability or redislocation. Most of the patients got back to previous level of sporting activities. Overall satisfaction was very high as far as the objective findings. Uh, there were no continued signs of the apprehension test. They had full range of motion, and radiologic assessment also showed uh, excellent correction, including uh, crossover sign, the new uh, measurements of trochlear depth, and uh, they had great results. Uh, just like you said, both the radiologic and clinical outcomes are, are, are very good in general with uh, trochleoplasty. Uh, moving on to, to your paper with uh, Laura Vogel and uh, Lipace was 2019, and that was published in Arth- Arthroscopy Techniques. And uh, it was a thin flap, as you said, versus the thick flap, groove-deepening trochleoplasty with added MPFL reconstruction. Now you're using the gracilis allograft, and as you said, the lateral retinacular lengthening, which is interesting, versus the lateral release, uh, which I found uh, very interesting in the video, shows that really really very well. The video that comes along with that uh, published article is an excellent video. Um, and what I was hoping to talk about, we touched on the risk factors in general age, obviously female sex, genuvalgum, femoral and tibial torsion, increased activity level. These are all uh, risk factors. And then especially the trochlear dysplasia. And DuJour reported that over 90% of patients who did have surgery for patellar instability did have some form of trochlear dysplasia. So that's a pretty consistent finding that most of these patients have trochlear dysplasia. But obviously in the United States, most people are not going after the trochlear. Most people are going after obviously MPFL, soft tissue versus tibial tubercle uh, osteotomy. And you had a, a great write-up in your paper, and I was hoping you could go through it a little bit just for full information, diagnostic and uh, evaluation and your surgical indications. Yeah. So, um, you know, first off, what I want to do is actually I wanted to go back to the old paper and just make a couple comments. In the discussion, um, they talked about pain and a few different things, and they weren't quite sure exactly what to make of that. Right. One of the comments that they made was that they did not they did not record their preoperative data regarding the status of patellar cartilage. They noted that there was a high number, like in retrospect, they remembered that there was a high number of people who had pre-existing chondral damage on their patella. But they didn't understand. They, they make the point, and again, that's why I love this paper. Is it was so balanced, and they said, "Look, we didn't understand the significance of this at that time, so we didn't think to record it." And so now, when we have these patients, some of these patients, they were all really happy, but there was a percentage of them who had increased pain afterwards. Was that because of what we did, or was that because of this pre-existing chondral damage? And and did we actually, in some way, help them? Would their pain have been even worse if we hadn't done the trochleoplasty? Right. So, you know, one of the things that I've, that I've noted is on almost everybody who has trochlear dysplasia bad enough to warrant a trochleoplasty, there's some degree of patellar chondral damage that's already there. It's actually rare to find a normal patella 
without any sort of damage to it. So it's it's really important to recognize that dysplasia is it is an arthritis maker. If I can sort of use a little bit more of a, a lay term, you know, what I mean, not be so scientific about it. If you look at any of the studies that have looked at this association, there's a really strong association between dysplasia and arthritis. So I think that what we do in the in this country with compensatory surgery, you know, ignoring the dysplasia, trying to work around the dysplasia with soft tissue augmentation, you know, tibial tubercle realignment, that that is by definition compensatory surgery that does not address the problem at hand and that that's going to have limits and may in some people actually be detrimental. And if you look at the more recent studies, trochleoplasty actually trends towards more cartilage preservation than non-trochleoplasty procedures. And the other thing is like in in the more current papers, the stuff that's been published more recently, because this is a 14-year-old paper at this point, the amount of patellofemoral pain, it's actually a lot less nowadays. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, but this is on the high end of things as regarding post-operative patellofemoral pain. Most people feel better after this. I mean, I'm not sure if it's better patient selection, better patient expectations, being able to handle different aspects of the procedure differently with regards to cartilage. But there are definitely a lot of things that, um, that we've been able to improve upon since this paper was published. So there's that. But now let's, let's get on to the next question, which was, you know, sort of what are my um, indications with regards to diagnostic evaluation? So, well, I guess history exam and imaging, we can just kind of walk through all those. So one of the things that I, um, I know you've noticed as well, especially being at a children's hospital, we're very forward-facing with patellar instability. It, this is, without question, the, the majority of patients with symptomatic instability are teenagers um, or even kids younger than 10. You know, their instability can range from traumatic to atraumatic, meaning like some people come into your office and say, you know, my kneecaps just started dislocating over the past, you know, three months. You know, I didn't do anything. I was just walking or I was going down the steps versus that person who twists their knee violently in a boarding activity, right? So when you hear those things like someone says, oh, I've, you know, I just, my kneecaps started dislocating, you know, those are the people that I, that you should suspect have severe pathoanatomy. You know, most of the time that's going to be dysplasia that, that's going to cause that. Obviously, people who fail conservative measures, people who, you know, note that they can't participate in their activities normally. Those are people that I, I worry have higher degrees of pathoanatomy, again, with the most t- common type of pathoanatomy being trochlear dysplasia. So that's, those are usually things that key me in on history. Um, when I examine somebody, there's a few findings that I, I think are really specific for trochlear dysplasia. We all understand and know the patellar apprehension sign by grabbing the patella and translating it laterally and then watching the the patient say, hey, stop that. But most people, we just do that with the knee in full extension. And what you need to do is you actually need to progressively flex the knee up higher and higher and continue to stress that patella laterally. So I will usually do it in, you know, 30 degrees, 45 degrees, 60 degrees, you know, all the way up to 80 or 90 degrees. And I'll I'll get a sense of where that patella stabilizes and when they lose their apprehension sign. And usually what you'll find is that people with high-grade dysplasia, you can still cause them to be apprehensive with their knee flexed 60 degrees or more. You know, some of these really bad dysplastic people, their knee can be almost 90 degrees and you can still push their kneecap out. So, you know, the only thing that can cause that is really bad patella alta. Uh, But usually you can see that because the kneecap just looks high when you look at their knee. But if the, if the kneecap does not look high and that 
and you see that on exam, that is almost always going to be trochlear dysplasia that causes that. And, and that was something that I had no knowledge about and no concept about at all at any point in my training. And I didn't have any concept of that in my first several years of practice. You know, I had to go to, I had to fly to Germany and have Philip Schottel be like, oh yeah, you know, if you think about it, like that big bump proximally in the trochlea keeps that patella from being able to stay centered. And it was, I was like, oh my gosh, like, why was I never taught that? Right. Um, Cause no one knew we, we haven't paid attention to that in this country anyway. So, so that's, those are, those are key physical exam findings for me. And then as far as imaging diagnostics, x-ray and MRI, for me, MRI is the workhorse for indicating somebody for whatever it is that needs to happen. X-rays are good and x-rays bolster or support MRI. And they also are good for pre and post-op evaluation, right? But you know, the du jour classification is widely used um, and, and it's elegant. It's a beautiful way to observe the subtleties of trochlear dysplasia on an x-ray. But for me, I don't really indicate people with the x-ray because the x-rays are too unreliable. You know, you have to have a perfect lateral and du jour, it's so qualitative. And the inter-observer reliability of du jour is, is really not good. So for me, I, I get x-rays, but they work in concert with MRI and MRI is what I really use. And so when I evaluate the trochlea, the workhorse is the axial images. So it's, that's how I really will make a determination about what somebody needs as far as patellar stabilization. And obviously the MRI is great because you can evaluate cartilage surfaces, you can evaluate patellar height, and you can do all those things, but you can really quantitate exactly how flat or convex or normal that proximal trochlea is on an axial MRI scan. And there's a, we just had this accepted for publication in OJSM, Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine. Um, so we should, it'll be out sometime this year, um, hopefully in the next few months, looking at, there's a, a measurement called the lateral trochlear inclination angle. We just say LTI for short. And that was something that was published back in 2000, but it was a, a single image measurement. And I didn't think that that adequately, that that was adequate to quantitate dysplasia for a variety of reasons. I don't, you know, it's probably too much to get into it here, get into the weeds too much. But we have this, this two-image method of quantitating dysplasia with the LTI, and, I, and that's what I really use to indicate somebody. And so what that is is, you know, once, in short, once a trochlea goes flat, once it gets flat proximally or becomes convex, those are people that I consider to be candidates for a trochleoplasty. If someone has more mild trochlear dysplasia, you know, um, if their lateral trochlear inclination angle is seven or 10 or something like that, you know, those people, I, I actually do just compensate for their dysplasia. I will just do compensatory soft tissue augmentation and retentioning, which is an isolated MPFL reconstruction lateral lengthening. But once they go flat, and, that's a, and that would be an LTI of zero, or if they go convex, which would be a negative LTI, those are people that I tend to indicate for a trochleoplasty. And that's pretty much most of Europe's model as well. There are still people in the U.S. who do perform trochleoplasties, but, but they're probably a little more conservative than I am on that. I think that they, uh, some people only do it as a salvage procedure. Other people really want a big bump before they're going to do it. I, I'm pretty much in line with European indications. You know, that's, that's so interesting about the MRI, that, uh, that lateral uh, trochlear inclination angle. Uh, and that it's measured when the first slice that's showing articular cartilage, uh, that's sort of where you make that measurement, you know, at, like, you know, when, as you're scrolling through the axial images, are you actually going to start measuring that, you know? 
And it's basically, it says, you know, first slice that shows your articular cartilage. So that's, you know, when to measure that angle, which I thought was interesting. You know, just recently, actually, in, in uh, uh, JPO, Andy Pennick down in San Diego published a, a 3D MRI trochlear morphology uh, paper, which I thought was, you know, pretty interesting. And it might be, you know, something that we'll add. And right now, it's just too cumbersome, at least as far as his paper showed. It's taking these texts, you know, an hour or so to, to actually get this 3D uh, reconstruction of the trochlear morphology is kind of a difficult thing. What, what you're describing is so much easier. It's just a, a simple, you know, actual cut and finding the right spot to measure that inclination angle. Yeah, I actually have um, Andy's paper as well. I saw that. It, it does require taking measurements off two images because you find the most proximal cut of trochlear cartilage and you'll measure the, uh, the angle of the trochlea relative to just a horizontal line. Um, you get a Cobb angle function, right? And then put that along the one line of the angle along the trochlear cartilage surface. And then another line is just a horizontal, just mm -hmm. make it flat, right? And then you scroll distally until you have well-formed posterior femoral condyles. And then from there, then you'll measure, you'll do the same thing with the Cobb angle function. You'll draw a, a tangential line along the condyles and then another parallel line, you know, and then what you do is you'll basically take the difference of the measurement from the trochlea and the measurement from the condyles, and that's your LTI. Ah, cool. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That, that's great. And we're publishing that as well. Well, that's part of the publication right there is, 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 is that exact technique showing that it's, it's much better, it's more reliable if you do it on two images because trochlear dysplasia, it, when that most proximal cut of cartilage, you almost never see fully formed femoral condyles. So you've got to scroll down a little bit to catch them. Uh, while we're on that note, do you do, do you add rotational profiles at all in your MRIs? Uh, you know, do you, I mean, I guess if it's indicated, you know, if it's in, in part of your, your, your clinical examination, you realize there's a lot of, you know, antiversion or torsion, do you add that into your MRI imaging? Oh, yeah, it's a good question. So that actually goes back to the physical exam. So other things that I, that I look for on exam, uh, I will always check alignment, uh, coronal alignment. So, you know, just as soon as the first thing I do when they're on the table is I, I just see what their uh, a visual assessment of coronal plane alignment. Um, I'll check ligamentous integrity, cruciates and collaterals, check range of motion, see how much they hyperextend. Uh, obviously do the patellar specific exams for instability. But then I also do a rotational profile evaluation where I'll put them on their on their stomach and then I'll sort of bend their knee to 90 degrees yeah. so their foot's up in the air and then I'll, I'll feel for the greater trochanter and I'll, I'll rotate the, the hip back and forth until that trochanter is at its most prominent point laterally and then I see where the position of the foot is yeah. and if it looks like they've got high degrees of antiversion like like you know greater than 30 40 degrees um, I, I will then spring for a rotational profile study. And, and it, I've, I've usually been getting CT scans. I actually don't think that I have the capability for rotational profile MRI where I'm at locally. So I, have to, I do that via CT scan, but I do look at it. And for the people that I think need that evaluation, I, I will get that study on it. Not routinely, but sort of like what I think is as needed. Excellent. That's that, uh, that uh, greater trochlear prominence type test. And then also uh, assessing for external tibial torsion. I guess that's when would be an indication to further image to get uh, whether whatever your institution is ct or mri uh, guidance on on that rotational profile uh, excellent and if you do find excessive say for example tibial torsion you have high grade dysplasia then maybe you would add a tibial tuberculosteotomy as well if that was indicated maybe that would be far out uh, 
I'm still trying to figure that out. We, we, we have some projects that are in the works right now. So kind of put things in perspective for you. I have not done a tibial tubercle osteotomy since probably 2015, maybe 2016. And the reason is this, is that one of the other deformities that you see with dysplasia is you see a pathologically medialized trochlear groove. So you have this extra bone that causes the trochlea to extend more proximally up the distal femur, but it also takes whatever trochlear groove is there uh, or left over, and it pushes it medial. So tibial tubercle, the trochlear groove distance, for a couple of reasons, there is validity to that measurement with its association with patellar instability. But I think where we have gotten tripped up is that we think that what that value is telling us is that the tibial tubercle is pathologically lateral. And I think that actually what that's telling us is that our trochlear groove is pathologically medial. Uh, it, it was almost too much of a spoiler alert. That's what uh, is a really cool part I thought of your paper is how you actually decrease the TG, TG distance, but you go after the TG instead of the TT, which is sort of what uh, uh, is kind of standard uh, uh, teaching or training. Yeah, exactly. One of our other studies that we just got accepted as well, it's actually a, a series with, we have describing the two image LTI, and then we show the effect of dysplasia on these different radiographic parameters. And these will both be published in OJSM, hopefully at the same time. But we showed that when we measured dysplasia via the LTI, which is great because it's a continuous variable, which means that it's a, you know, it's a, it's a number as opposed to ABCD. So you can, you can evaluate it statistically better. We found that as LTI gets lower, i.e. more dysplasia, there was, a very, there was a very strong correlation between that and increases in the tibial tubercle, the trochlear groove distance. And so we've established that there's a relationship there. The next thing we're doing is we've actually gone in and, and we've measured where the trochlear groove is relative to the medial and lateral borders of the femur. So we can calculate percent trochlear groove medialization. And so that's, we actually still have to analyze that data. But there's, you know, another interesting point to that is that there's been some prior work that shows that tibiofemoral rotation is increased in patients with patellar instability. And one other project we're looking at is how does that relate to dysplasia? Like, is that a compensatory thing? Is, and we actually, our initial data shows that there's a high association with increased tibiofemoral rotation and trochlear dysplasia. And there's also been shown that this tibiofemoral rotation also increases your TTTG. So you've got a patient whose kneecap dislocates, they're in the scanner, and as a comfort measure, they rotate their foot out to off so their patella isn't like mashed up against their dysplastic trochlea. So they increase their tibiofemoral rotation. They've got a pathologically medialized trochlear groove. So when they get their MRI or their CT scan, their TTTG is measuring like 20. Right. right. And it may be due to excessive tibiofemoral rotation and a medialized trochlear groove and not due to a pathologically medial or lateralized tibial tubercle. So, you know, to be determined, we'll, we'll get that data published as soon as we can. But talk right. about like turning the paradigm of evaluation on its head. Right. Yeah, that, that's great. Well, I look, really uh, look forward to, uh, uh, to seeing that as that comes out. We'll probably have to uh, schedule another podcast for that one, man. So anyway, yeah, so, so I, I actually don't, I almost never measure the TTTG anymore. I, I don't know, there, there's probably going to be some people out there who do honestly need a tubercle osteotomy, and I'm prepared to do it for those people that need it, but I just think it's such a, a small minority of people who actually need that done. Going after where the true deformity is, so to speak, 
with that, uh, we move on to uh, uh, the actual uh, surgical technique. Yeah, yeah. So, so similar to to Berider. So we do a lateral parapatellar arthrotomy, and in my surgical technique, I say an eight to 10 centimeter incision. And we've actually got that. We've been lowering that now. We're probably down routinely to seven centimeters. And especially in a thin female, you can really make it small. The bigger muscle, uh, muscular guys, you just kind of need a little bit more exposure. Lateral parapatellar approach. Um, we will do the Z lengthening of the retinaculum. We'll do that very first. And then we'll dislocate the patella medially. Um, you know, we we'll usually split the quad so that we can uh, mobilize the patella enough medially. Separate or in distinction from Berider, we actually do this over a tibial triangle, like one that you'd use for fracture work, right? So we like to have the knee bent for this. Uh, a tibial triangle is great because it, it holds it stationary. It holds it in place. It works really good. And then once we have the patella dislocated, then we will separate the synovium off the proximal trochlea, and then we'll start elevating a flap. And there's a couple ways you can do it. Uh, you can just use osteotomes, um, curved and straight osteotomes, and you can elevate a flap. And then there's, I believe I talk about it and show it in the technique article, but there is a commercially available burr with, a, uh, with an offset guide yes. um, that you can use. So that you maintain the thickness, right? So even though this is a thin, maybe one of the issues is, is trying to keep this thin, going too thin, but that guide seems to uh, prevent that from happening. Yeah, the guide helps minimize that. Although I will say that, like, if you don't use the guide, ideally, you will make things thinner than you than you realize. So, but what's interesting is, like, you know, I I, I cut my teeth, and probably my first fifty trochleoplasties, fifty sixty trochleoplasties, I did. I used that burr quite extensively to elevate the flap. But now, what's interesting is, I actually have gone now more old school, and I use the osteotomes almost exclusively to elevate the entire flap. Wow. No kidding. Okay. I've just found that I, ironically or paradoxically, I feel like I have a level of control with those osteotomes that I, I might not have with the burr, at least not yet. Who knows? Maybe I'll, maybe as I go along, I'll, I'll start going back to the burr to elevate the flap, you know, cause this burr was designed to elevate this and this burr was designed by Philip Schottle, right? So here's the guy that did his first 800 trochleoplasties with an osteotome. And now he's using this burr. So maybe I just got to play catch up to Philip, right? But I do use the burr. Once the flap is elevated, I will use the burr to thin out the backside because you got to get that underside thin so that you can mold the cartilage. But I'll elevate that, uh, that whole flap. And then once I've got it up, then I'll take an osteotome and I'll start taking out triangular wedges of bone that meet in the middle of where I want to put the new trochlea. And I'll yeah. mark that out where I want it to be you know, I'll send a little quarter inch chisel right down where I want the depth of the groove to be. And then I'll cut the groove right there. You set that and that's sort of the center line, your new center line for where the new groove is going to be. Exactly. But I think that's a key point because if you don't set that and you just kind of start guessing where you want it to go, then, you know, it's like, oh, I didn't want it there. I think I want it there. And so you start making adjustments say, oh, no, I actually did want it back there. And now you've got this big cavern. Right. So it's, it's nice to, to keep it as precise as possible. Um, and, and, and setting that depth of where you want your new groove to be first really helps with that. So then you'll chisel away the bone, thin out the flap, and then from there, you'll mold it back into place. You know, this is something that actually you'd be surprised, like even with just a little teeny thin shell of bone on that cartilage, sometimes it's still pretty stiff. Um, and so it does require, you don't want to pound it, you don't want to impact it, but you do need to push on it. 
And so, you know, you got to get a thumb in there. You got to just kind of be slow and steady and just push on it. And you'll, you'll feel it start giving and you'll feel it mold its way into that groove. Um, and then the more you work it, the more flexible it will get. If you're happy with what you've been able to achieve, then you fix it, you fix it in place. And one thing that we've also done is, you know, when you, when you elevate the flat, there is a little bit of bone that's removed. And so, you know, sometimes you can actually take away a little bit of the height of the lateral condyle. I mean, not much, but a couple millimeters. And so on an as-needed basis, we will actually stick little wedges of bone graft back into that space so that we can maintain lateral height if we think we need it. Right. That makes, that makes, great, that makes good sense because, uh, you know, you want to obviously keep that up high enough. You don't want to lose that, that height there. Absolutely. And, and then once we've got it, once we're ready to fix it back in place, then we, this is the only spot where we actually violate the cartilage. So what we'll do is central and distally in the neutrochlear groove, we'll place a biocomposite anchor. We use a, a push lock anchor. Um, and that anchor is loaded up with effectively six strands of number one bifold suture. We have it loaded up so that the strands are of equal length through the push lock. I guess it's the midpoint of those sutures are through the eyelid of the push lock. So that way you've got 15 centimeters of suture coming out either side of that eyelet. And so you'll place the push lock in, and now you've um, you just converted six strands of suture into 12. And I, this is always the hardest part to explain. You kind of always just have to see it to have it make sense. But you can now take these free ends of suture, and then I take four strands. I'll run them right up the center of the groove, and then we'll hold the groove maximally reduced in place. And then we'll place another push lock anchor with those sutures loaded through it, proximal, um, and that will help hold the trochlear cartilage in place in the new trochlear groove. And then we'll do the same thing to hold down the medial and lateral facets of the the trochlea. And the vicral suture, it works way better than a screw in this situation. And again, we only violate the cartilage in one spot. And those sutures, are they dissolve in like six weeks. They're gone. Yeah, so then they're, yeah, of course, and they're no longer there because you wouldn't want those to be staying on the cartilage and they'll just dissolve. Yeah, they go away. The synovial environment causes them to absorb like rapidly, like way, way faster than what you'd get, you know, in just a standard incision where, you know, the, the vicral suture will spit three months later, right? They go away really quick in the synovial environment and, they, and it, they're very friendly to the cartilage. You know, I've, I've had a few patients where they've gotten stiff afterwards and so I've had to go back in for a lysis of adhesions. And I actually did one just the other day. It was a girl who just tried hard, but just had bad luck with her physiology, just laid down a bunch of scar tissue. We went back in like, I want to say like eight weeks after we did her troke. And I mean, the sutures were gone. I mean, they were gone. You never know they were there. And that trocleoplasty was completely healed in place. That flap heals really rapidly. Yeah, it's going to have to heal bone. And in young people, you'd expect that to heal pretty well. Yeah. And then after that, then we do the MPFL reconstruction and we do a V-shaped graft. So we do two points of fixation on the patella and then a single point of fixation on the femur. Different from what was written up in this, in this technique guide, actually, instead of using an interference screw on the femur, I actually use a uh, button. I use a cortical button now. I find that it's, it's more reliable. I can get better tension on it and I don't damage my graft uh, like I, I would with a screw. You know, the screw, it put it in, it sometimes over tensions or it lacerates the graft or it backs out. And with an adjustable loop cortical button, I don't have to worry about that stuff. You have to be careful when you tighten the button down because if you over tension it, you're done. You got to cut the button out and put a new one in. But if you're careful, you can actually avoid that almost entirely. And it's been really nice. So that's the one modification that I do differently than what's in this uh, technical article. 
Okay. Yeah, but obviously there's lots of lots of different ways to do the uh, the MPFL, uh, but you can do it without you know other than making that small little incision for the femoral button or however your fixation is. I mean, you're using the same incision, so um, really getting a lot of work done out of a fairly small incision. Yeah, for sure. And then the very last thing we do is on our way out, we just complete the retinacular lengthening. So we flex the knee to 70 degrees, which is where the retinaculum is at its longest. And then we just sort of put the two layers back together wherever they lie. So we don't necessarily build in a certain amount of length. We just take what the body gives us. And we find that we always get at least a centimeter. And I would say on average, we're probably getting at least a centimeter and a half of length on every one of these patients. So that's an interesting part of this. Instead of a lateral release, so to speak, it's, lateral, it's actually a lengthening type procedure, a little bit different. Yeah, and that we keep um, soft tissues in continuity on either side of the patella. Now, and I've never seen it, but whenever you hear of medial patellar instability, yeah. it's always been an iatrogenic thing secondary to an aggressive lateral release, Right. right? Right, yep. And so the, the lengthening, it will prevent that because you'll, you'll, have, you'll just take the two layers of the retinaculum, dissect them off of each other, shift them, and sew them back together. And then there are some people out there who have pain after lateral release, like it hurts them. And so there's like, you just don't see pain after a retinacular lengthening. Um, in fact, I do those in isolation for patients with patellofemoral pain. Anyway, it's a great part of the surgery. Well, good deal. The last part of it would just be your post-op protocol which is uh, pretty straightforward, but uh, if you wouldn't mind reviewing that for us. Yeah, so this is a day surgery, so people come in and go home the same day. Um, we will usually augment them with an adductor canal nerve block. I don't want to take their quad strength away, so we just do a sensory block. They are weight-bearing, as tolerated, and they have full range of motion. So, um, yeah, like different from Barider, we don't do that 20-degree extension block, and obviously the reason was is he wanted to hold that patella in place in the groove to make mm -hmm. let it heal. For us, um, we have such good fixation with the sutures and the push locks the way we have it now that we don't need to take that step. So that suture and push lock configuration is really doing on that work for us. So full weight bearing, full motion, no hinge knee brace. And you know, we really want to get them moving early because if there is a, an early post-operative complication, it's going to be stiffness. Yeah. You know, it's funny, I'm looking at my paper and it says a hinge knee brace is optional and should not be worn for more than two to three weeks. I don't even give patients the option anymore. I just, I don't even, I don't even, it's not even in the room. Yeah. So we want to get them moving. Uh, as soon as they get their motion back, it's smooth sailing. They all get extension. Extension's never a problem, but if they struggle, it's going to be flexion. So we take a few people back to the OR every year for lysis of adhesions, but it's definitely less than 10%. And then, you know, as far as return to sport, it's amazing how quickly some of these patients get better. And it's very effort dependent. Some people will, you know, walk into the office at the two-week post-op without a crutch. Other people are on crutches for four weeks. And, you know, this thing is heals quite rapidly, very rapidly. So I would say if someone can regain their motion and get their strength back reasonably well, I mean, almost everybody's allowed to try some degree of impact activities at three months. And I've even returned people to full impact sports between three and four months post-op if they rehabbed well enough. So it can actually be a really fast recovery based on the effort of the patient in their rehab. Excellent. That's, uh, uh, yeah, that's pretty quick if you get them back at three months. And probably a little easier uh, rehab protocol, too, than a TTO, for example. That's, that's pretty rough when you, when you disrupt the extensor mechanism like that. I'm also nervous about basically you know, a good six weeks of healing before you even really want to move in much at all. So this seems like a much easier post-operative protocol. Yeah. And that's the beauty about it is that for this procedure, 
motion is uh, not the enemy. Motion is our friend because you know, you've got those sutures that are doing the work of holding that osteochondral flap in place. But when they weight bear, when they fire their quad, when they bend their knee, that patella compresses against that area and only helps it heal. So they actually help themselves by bending their knee and by walking on it, as opposed to, you know, we have to protect them because if they do too much walking, if they bend it too much on a fresh tubercle osteotomy, you know, the screws can back out, they can fracture around them, you know? So, yeah. And then, you know, one of the thing I'll say is Breider's paper, he talked about that, you know, we don't want to do this in an open physis. Well, there's another German surgeon, Manfred Nielitz, just published something in AJSM last year where he did trocleoplasties in patients who had two years of growth remaining or less. It was a thin, flat technique, um, and they had zero growth disturbances from that. Well, I guess if you keep it thin, you're staying away from that growth plate. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll get into it. You'll get yeah. into the physis. But it's such a small volume that gets disrupted. You know, and it wasn't even that they observed clinically insignificant growth disturbances. It was that there was no growth disturbance. And they had radiographic follow-up on all these patients up until skeletal maturity. And, and if you think about it, Dominic, like the worse your dysplasia is, the younger you're going to have symptoms from it, yes. right? So you've got these really young people with horrible dysplasia. So yes. I, I would say, you know, I've done 120 probably trocleoplasties at this point, at least, and probably 100 and close to 120 since I've been in Connecticut for the past three years. And, you know, I would say at least... 30 or 40 of those have been open physis trocleoplasties. That manuscript gave me the confidence to help these people in a more definitive fashion. I know I do have some people who are prepubescent, right? Who have like, you know, four years of growth left that really haven't gone through puberty. I will temporize those people with MPFL reconstruction. But the counseling is, is that, look, this is, this is a patch. This is a patch. It may not even hold out for that long. So we should anticipate that when you get a little bit older, that we should probably bring you back. Some people say that like if you can stabilize the patella early enough that you can actually cause the trochlear group to remodel, that wouldn't sense. that be awesome? So we'll see if that's actually the case because I've now got enough people that we could maybe observe that. But um, I'm not holding my breath on that one. But but I do I do there are I do have a limit. Um, I, I I haven't gone lower than three years of growth remaining yet. Like you said, so those kids who are quite young, you know, we see those here quite often, those kids, you know, 10 years old, eight, even eight, eight, 10 year old kids, you can only do soft tissue. Um, if you're doing MPFL, uh, do you do, you know, any Rue Goldwaith or any distal realignments or anything like that, or just strictly MPFL on those kids? Yeah. So in my former life, I was a big fan of the complete patellar tendon transfer. You know, the Rue Goldwaith is a, uh, you're leaving the medial 50% of the tendon intact, and then you're transferring the lateral 50% medially. I never understood that procedure. So 50%, you expect that 50% to heal that you elevated and, and transferred. Why wouldn't the other 50% heal if you just elevated the whole thing and moved it over? Scott Lumen in, in St. Louis had been doing that. I actually got the technique from him, but it's just that I would just elevate the tendon off of the tubercle and I would just translate it medially and sew it back into place. I've never done a Rue Goldthwaite. I've never found the, the logic behind that at all. If I'm going to move the patellar tendon insertion, I'll just move the whole thing and not distort the anatomy, unnecessarily so. With that said, I haven't done that in a long time. If, if the pathology dictated that that needed to happen, again, like one of those, there was one of those patients that truly had like a malpositioned tibial tubercle, then that would make sense to me. And I would, I could do that in a soft tissue fashion while they were young with something like that. But if it's, I, I don't know that I, I'm in love with the idea of 
creating a new deformity on somebody if I'm trying to compensate for their dysplasia with that. So I, I haven't done that yet. And who knows, maybe there's my hand will be forced one of these days, but I, I haven't crossed that bridge yet. I've just, if dysplasia is their problem, if dysplasia is their problem and they're too young to get a trochleoplasty, then I have just temporized them with the MPFL reconstruction. Uh, the only time I do stuff distal is if I'm dealing with Alta. Okay, good. Well, wow. Lee, thanks so much. Uh, uh, really, really appreciate your time. This has uh, been really educational for me, especially, and uh, uh, this is, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to make for a lot of good content. Yeah, no, happy to do it. You know, regardless, it was good to just kind of touch base again. Uh, certainly, again, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, yeah, good talking to you. Awesome. You too. All right, Lee, take care. Man. Bye. Bye.